The sermon lesson is from Nehemiah 4, 1 through 23. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we... And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is falling. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Our Father, we pray once again that your word would be a lamp unto our feet and it would be a light unto our path, and that by it we would see Jesus, and that we would be changed by him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. 
Uh, if you are new to resurrection, we've been recently started walking through this book of Nehemiah. It's in the Old Testament. It was written about 450 years uh, before Jesus came. And at this point, Israel has been taken away, has been conquered by an invading army, and they have been taken away into a foreign land to live as captives. And so they are now living in exile. And what happens is about 100 years later from that point, from that uh, exile, uh, there is a group that decides to go back and to begin this work of rebuilding, of rebuilding walls and of rebuilding lives. And up to this point in our study, Nehemiah has taken center stage. And the name Nehemiah, it literally means the Lord's comfort. And so what we are seeing is, is the Lord's comfort to a people in oppression and in exile and in great need being channeled through the work of this one individual. And Nehemiah, what, up to this point, where we're at is he has heard about this great need, about how the city lies in ruins and the people's lives are in ruins, and he responds with grief and with mourning and fasting and pleading and then saying to the king, send me to do this work of rebuilding. And so he goes and he surveys the damage, and then he unites the people together in this effort to build. And that's where we left off last week of, of the work is going well. They've seen the damage and they've joined together, husbands and wives and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. They're, the whole community is linking together and we saw the success of their work, how the different gates and the different parts of the walls are beginning to re be rebuilt. And so walls are being rebuilt and lives are being rebuilt as well. But what happens this week is to meet this surge of restoration and rebuilding is this surge of, of opposition. A power that comes against this work that is happening of rebuilding. And the question that's front and center for us this morning is, is what do we do when the going gets tough? And so as we try to connect the dots from what's happening in Nehemiah's and in their experience to our own present existence... There's really two ideas that are critical for us moving forward in our own work of rebuilding. And that is first knowing what we are up against and then actively joining in the resistance. And so knowing what we are up against and actively joining in the resistance. And so first, when the going gets tough, you got to know what you are up against. So, so years ago, I taught elementary PE. It was one of my many talents and skills that are hidden from the common eye. But one of the things that made that job so fun was, for me was the regular opportunity to compete against kids 10 and under. And so, <laughs> and there's one, there's one day that, you know, this may sound pathetic, but there's this, this one day that sticks into my mind. Uh, I was playing, we're playing Sharks and Minnows. I was coaching Sharks and Minnows with a bunch of first graders. And I decided to join in in the last game, and lo and behold, who's the last person standing? It's me. And so we'll give it one more shot. So there's all the kids, the 20 of them lined up, and, and me lined up on this side. They call minnows in, and it's my goal to get over there without being tagged. And it was one of these epic moments. <laughs> it felt like life slowed down, and there's like sprinting and cutting and turning 
And I got to the other side, and I, and I, and I didn't get tagged. And there's this moment of like, this is what elite athletes feel like <laughs> all the time. All the time. The only difference is I'm competing against seven-year-olds. But I, I, knew, I knew what I was up against. And as I looked out there, it's just not that intimidating. It, it's not that scary. It's not that frightening. There's a sense in which, okay, I see it. I've got this. When Nehemiah surveys what he's up against, it's a very different story. When you, when you read the context of what's happening, there is, there is trouble from the north. There is trouble from the east, and there is trouble from the south. They're surrounding people groups and nations and tribes that are coming against them. The only place where trouble is not found is in the east, is in the west, and that's simply because they're up against the Mediterranean Sea, which is just this barrier that keeps them from going anywhere. And here's how the surrounding powers feel about what's happening. This good work of rebuilding. Verse 4, now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. Now, Sambalat and Tobiah, these are real historical figures that, um, that we find evidences of outside of the Bible in other cultures. And so these are, these are real people with real powers oppressing another real people at a real place in time. So people in power, they hear what's going on, they, they become furious, and they focus all of their energies against this small group of vulnerable people. And they say, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Are they going to revive stones out of these heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Yes. What they're building, if a, even a fox goes on it, He'll break down their stone wall. These are questions and accusations that are are not thrown out there with the intent of building up, but with the intent of of tearing down. One of the conversations we will have with our kids uh, again and again is just that words are like knives. You have to be so careful with them because they can cut and wound deeply. And these questions and accusations are weapons that are used, that are meant to cut, that are meant to wound that are meant to debilitate this work. And we, we all know what that feels like to have these kinds of weapons used against us and how harmful it can be. But the opposition doesn't stop just at this volley of words. Look at verse 8. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them and kill them and stop the work. So this isn't, this isn't just them asking questions and try to discourage them. This is them plotting to sneak up and physically harm them and attack them. So this is serious opposition from serious powers. But the opposition isn't just from these enemies that are surrounding them, but even from their own people that are living outside of the city. So verse 12, at that time, the Jews who lived near them, so this is the Jews kind of surrounding the city outside of this work that's happening. They came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in one of the best movies of all times, one of the most critically acclaimed of all times, one of my favorites, uh, Rocky IV, um, there's a scene where 
Rocky tells, uh, he tells his wife that he wants to fight the Russian champion that's recently killed his best friend in the ring. And Adrian's always been his biggest fan, his biggest supporter, the one who's been in his corner saying, you can do it. Uh, but this time it's different. Uh, she looks at me and says, you, you can't go with what you are. You've read the papers. You've seen how strong he is. And in a dramatic moment, she says, you can't win. The, the Jews living in this surrounding area are, are looking at their brothers and sisters who are doing this work of rebuilding. And they see the opposition and they, they say, you can't win. Look at how weak you are and look at how strong they are. Look at their forces. And they don't just do this once or twice or three times. They send messengers ten times with this message of, you can't win. This is not going to work. This is a terrible idea. You need to give up. You need to get out of the city and you need to return to us. And so the result of all of that opposition that comes from these powerful nations and even their family and friends in the surrounding areas is verse 10. The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. So all of this opposition begins to, to take its toll inside and they begin to look around at the rubble and the wreckage in their own lives and that we know what this feels like. We know what it looks like to survey our lives and the lives of others and the brokenness of our families and of our church and of our world and our community and we can look around and simply say the rubble is too much. The work is too hard. There is too much against us. And our strength begins to fail. But in this, in this good work to rebuild walls, to rebuild lives, it begins. Perseverance and moving forward begins with knowing what you are up against. The opposition is strong. And how do they respond? And this brings us to our second point. When the going gets tough, that they see what they're up against, and then they actively join in this resistance. So tomorrow is Martin Luther King Jr. holiday where we remember a specific act of resistance on behalf of an oppressed people that pushed against these powerful forces that were against them. And in his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, he writes this, these words, to encourage others to, to join in. It was a time where, where they were sensing that this, the rubble is too much. There's too much power. And we don't seem to be enough. And there is this letter that's written to encourage rebuilding. And in it, he says this. He said, whenever the early Christians entered the town the power structure got disturbed and sought to convict the Christians of being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But they went on with the conviction that they were this colony of heaven and they had to obey God rather than men. They were small in number, but big in commitment. And I love this. They were too God intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. 
They brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. The early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. Because in those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. From the very beginning, the the church is meant to be this movement of resistance, of, of rebuilding in the face of opposition and difficulty working for the good of the world. And we have to remember, Nehemiah is, is a cupbearer to the king. He is not a warrior. And he came to rebuild walls, and he came to rebuild lives. He did not come to fight a war. That was not his intention. But, but when the going gets tough, he actively calls on others to join in this work of resistance. Not, to, not a call to arms to go to war, but to defend themselves to protect the people that they love in the order that the work might continue. So verse 13, he says, I stationed people by all the clans with their swords, their spears, their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, your homes. I'm currently reading a book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And a lot of his, his thought is around this quote of Nietzsche who said, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. And in this particular work, his thoughts on this phrase, on what it looks like for us to persevere and find meaning in the most difficult of circumstances was was forged in the concentration camps of Auschwitz where he found himself. And at one point, he's talking about his experience, and he says, as we stumbled on for miles, slipping on icy spots, supporting each other time and time again, dragging one another up and onward, nothing was said, but we both knew each of us was thinking about his wife. Occasionally, I looked at the sky where the stars were fading and the morning was beginning to spread, but my mind clung to my wife's image. Real or not, her look was brighter than the sun, which was beginning to rise. And a thought transfixed me that love is the ultimate and highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart and that the salvation of man is through love and in love. For Nehemiah, it's not about what he is fighting against. It is what he is fighting for. And this rebuilding of this place, of these lives, is an act of love where he is calling upon brothers and sisters and fathers and sons to join together in protection of what they value most. And so he says, build from the morning until the stars come out. Uh, build with, with a tool in one hand and with a sword and a shield in the other. Build out of love for others. Build because the Lord your God is great and awesome. And build because this is our hope. Verse 20, our God will fight for us. Now, I want to end with two questions for us. That, that's kind of Nehemiah's experience. We're going to see how it unfolds moving forward. But... 
we see that he, he knows what he's up against and he calls others to actively join in this resistance. And so the question remains for us, these two questions, what, what are we up against and how do we actively join in the resistance? And there's so much that could be said here, but I want to draw your attention back to our New Testament lesson. And this is Paul's letter to the Ephesians, writing to the early church, letting them know that Jesus has come, he has died, he has been raised from the dead, but we are a people who are oppressed and who have forces and powers that are against us, but it's, it's not the nation of Babylon It's not the Ammonites or anything like that. He says, be strong in the Lord with the strength of his might and put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, In the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Uh, If if you are are new to the Christian faith or just kind of exploring it, it, it might be jarring to hear about words of spiritual warfare and demonic powers and oppressive forces. And we get that. There is a strangeness to it. There's a mystery to it. But we also believe that there's a reality to it. That in the same way there is a God who is both real and unseen, there are other beings that are real and unseen and other forces that are at work. And if you go back to even Jesus' life and his work and, and coming to bring the good news of this kingdom and to be a part of this rebuilding, think about the opposition he faced even from the time when he was born where there is an edict given that all of the babies two and under should be killed because the powers that be were after him. In one of his first acts after being baptized, he was driven into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan, asked questions, things to draw him off. Every turn, he faced opposition. He faced difficulties. He faced temptations. And then he, he tells us that in our desire to follow him and our desire to align our lives with him, that we should expect similar treatment. And we are called to fight. We are called to engage. We are called to rise up and to join together in this good work of rebuilding, knowing and not being surprised that when, when there is opposition, when there is difficulties, when we say, Uh, I want to grow more in my love for God and I want to grow more in my love for other people and I want to give of myself that we shouldn't be surprised when we begin to find that that's a lot more difficult than we thought. And and there's a lot of ways in which that becomes more challenging to us. And, And the encouragement we are given is to press on and to fight. But our weapons are so much different. Paul in another of his letters says, here, here are the weapons that we fight with that you should be armed with in this conflict. He says our weapons are purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, truthful speech, genuine love, the Holy Spirit, and the power of God. 
Those are kind of weapons you look at and you say, these aren't as impressive as what the world seems to have. But these are the weapons that change the world that Jesus used, that turn it upside down. And this is the irony of it. What, what looked like God's greatest defeat, when he sent his champion, his greatest warrior that was armed to bring about this new deliverance, this new exodus, this new salvation. This is why so many people didn't get it. Because at the end of the day, they looked up. And what they saw was they saw a naked, beaten, weak man hanging from a cross with a crown of thorns on his head and this sign etched above him that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And they looked at that and they were confused because that, there's no way that could be God's divine warrior. There's no way this can be God's chief champion that has come to liberate us and come to rescue us and come to bring the kingdom and make all things new. But this is how God works in such an upside down way. And this is how death was defeated and the powers disarmed by this son and this warrior being himself defeated by the powers and himself facing death in order that he might go through it and be raised from the dead with new life. As Frankel said in the concentration camp, the salvation of man is in love and through love. And the greater truth that we hold to is that our salvation is grounded in a much greater love than our own. It is in and through God's love for us. And so I want to end with these words from Paul that I hope will encourage us when the going gets rough. He says, but thanks be to God. In the midst of all of, of our conflict and all of our fears, there's still a sense of thanks be to God. He gives us victory through Christ our Lord. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is never in vain. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that your champion that you sent us was uh, the perfect one for us. We thank you that he won victory for us by experiencing a shameful defeat. That our forgiveness is obtained by our guilt being laid on him. That we are free from death because he was ravaged by it. And we experience new life by the gift of your spirit. Uh, give us wisdom to be able to see with greater clarity what we are up against. Uh, encourage our hearts and strengthen our hands for this conflict. Help us to join together in this work of love in fighting for one another, fighting with one another, fighting for the good of the world in this work of rebuilding. Where we say with Jesus, your kingdom come. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.